A few years back, Louis Giglio was flying from Texas to his home in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, after having spoken at a Christian conference there in Texas. And the particular plane was one of those regional jets that has 70 or 80 so passengers on it. And because Reverend Giglio tends to fly a lot, he usually waits to board the airplanes until the very end so he doesn't have to sit that long on the tarmac before uh, departure. Well, on this particular flight, he was the last one on board. And yet the plane just sat there, idle, at the gate. No doors were being closed. No preparations were being made, uh, you know, to make sure, picking all the garbage. None of that stuff before the flight was taking off. And after a while, uh, Pastor Louie looked around and he noticed an empty seat. And he started to think, oh, we must be waiting for someone. Some VIP, some very important person. And then he started thinking, who could that be? Maybe it's going to be an entertainer, maybe a politician or an actor, or perhaps some famous actor. Well, finally, after what seemed like an hour, the guy they were waiting for shows up, and he appears to be in his upper 30s, uh, and he's wearing medical scrubs. So Louis immediately starts thinking, who could this guy be? And it was at this juncture that he noticed a small high-end cooler that he was carrying under his left arm, which he then put up into the overhead bin. And he noticed on the side of the cooler that it said human eyes. And this was a case of someone transporting some donor's organs. And this medical person appeared exhausted, so they plopped down in their seat and then they proceeded to fall asleep pretty quickly. Well, after a relatively short flight, they reached their destination in Atlanta And everybody was instructed to stay on the plane for a few minutes, not to move, so that this person could get off of the plane and get to their uh, next destination. Well, after onboarding and heading through the airport, Louis noticed that this medical VIP had entered a gate heading for a, a flight to Knoxville, Tennessee. And Reverend Giglio thought to himself at that moment, someone in Knoxville is going to see today. Because of the death of one person, sight was coming to another. The corneal transplant uh, would bring clarity of vision to someone who hadn't been able to see for a season or perhaps not be able to see very well their entire life, he thought. What a miracle. Well, Ephesians 1.17 through the beginning of verse 18 says this, I keep asking that the Lord our God our Lord Jesus Christ, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glory, excuse me, let me say it again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The Apostle Paul's prayer here is for the church is that we will get to know our glorious Father better. His prayer for the Ephesian believers and all of us is that our eyes might be enlightened. Where there was no sight or minimal sight, that we will now be able to see clearly and fully. And that's my prayer today. And you heard some of that just as I prayed before this service, that we will be enlightened uh, in our understanding of who God is, because we have a God to call Father. And this God is a perfect Father. Now, in last week's message, we learned that God is a father, and this week we're going to learn that we can call him father, as Jesus did. 
Now, during last week's sermon, we talked about Psalm 70, 27, verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. This, of course, was a psalm of David. And he knew a little bit about uh, a parent forsaking him because his own father was, was really late in coming to the conclusion and recognizing that it was his youngest son, David, that was going to be the next new anointed king of Israel. And in this psalm, David says, even if those who should be the closest to us, who should have our best interests in mind, who should have our back, even if they forsake us, God never will. God will never leave us or forsake us, as Hebrews 13, 5 teaches. He will take care of us. He's the perfect Father. This is why we are to call Him Father. Yes, a father and mother are the primary source of protection, safety, and guidance for a child in this world. And if perhaps someone grows up in a fatherless, motherless home, then they can easily identify with what Psalm 27, verse 10 is teaching. The same is true if a person grew up in an abusive home, in a broken home, a dysfunctional home, a godless home, where they were abandoned, either physically or emotionally or spiritually, certainly, in that situation. Others may have grown up in performance-based homes where love and acceptance was conditional. They will, too, be able to relate to this verse. Such love in these families is based upon achievements. It's based upon performance and grades and athletic accomplishments and behavior and etc. And parents in those homes tend to kind of puff up their chests and feel good about themselves because of how their kids are performing. Well, in such environments, there is no room for failure. There's no room for relaxation or for slowing down because the child lives in the pressure cooker of the parents' expectations. Parents who raise children in the climate of their personal expectations and not God's crush their children's hearts. And being devoted entirely to parental expectations of success is devastating to children. And frankly, it's, it's abusive parenting. That's what it is. Our world doesn't view it that way. Our world doesn't view that performance-based parenting and expectations like that as being abusive. That's the world's standards. They don't think it is, but God's standards are that it is abusive. Too often, young people growing up in homes without godly parenting will end up rebelling to their parents' expectations or giving up completely and just becoming passive in life. Many will also give up on God, especially when God is portrayed as a father. And the reason being is those nearest and supposedly dearest in the child's life are the ones who have let them down the most. Now, last week we referenced that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. What comes to your mind when you think about God? That image, that view, that concept of God, that is the most important thing about you. And A.W. Tozer said our basic default mode regarding our concept of God is he said by a secret yearning of our souls that we move toward our mental image of God. That's where we go, toward our mental image of God. And has your upbringing influenced your image of God? Has it done it positively? Because some people have had very good upbringings, and they have some very positive concepts and good concepts of God. But perhaps it might have influenced you negatively. Some have very negative views of God because 
of, of how they were brought up. Our prayer in this sermon series is that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that despite what has ever happened in our lives, uh, we can catch a fresh vision of God, God as Father, God as the perfect Father, that you can come to the place in your life right now where you can actually call Him your Father. Now, this is what Jesus did. Jesus called God Father. Now, we've already spoken on this, in, quite a bit on this, in this sermon series about faulty views of God. But do you realize that it's also possible to go through the entire Bible and miss the main message of who God is? Some people, even though this is found in the Scriptures, they hold too narrow of a view of God. God as Father is not the only image of God found in the Bible, but it is the main image of God. So what Gospels and everything Jesus taught us and what he presented as uh, the image of God we should have in our minds, what did he present? Did he say that God is, is king? That's, that's the number one image? Or was it, it's not that God was the sovereign ruler of the universe. It's not that God is a God of justice. It's not that God is faithful and steadfast. He didn't present as the number one image that God is immortal and visible, the only wise God. He didn't present to us the number one image of God, that God is a gracious God or that God is a merciful God. He didn't, he didn't present to us as the number one image of God that He is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty. It's not that He is the Lord or the God of Israel. He didn't present to us the number one image that, it is, is that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yes, all of these things I've just mentioned here are all just mentioned here are all true about God. Not primarily one of those attributes all alone. None of these things were emphasized by Jesus as often as something else. Jesus repeated one continuous image of God over and over again so that it would become so deeply embedded in our minds and our hearts and our vocabulary. And the number one image of God that Jesus pointed out to us was what? That God is Father. That's what he presented to us. Is that your number one image of God as Father? You know, 189 times Jesus referenced God as Father in the Gospels. He told us as well to specifically address God that way. We have a God to call Father, and our God is a perfect Father. And there's something else that Jesus wants us to know about this God that we can call Father. He wants us to know that God, our Father, is near. Jesus wants us to see God in a new way, in a powerful way, that, that recognizing that God is this powerful, majestic, glorious uh, God who's full of wisdom, grace, and truth. And all of this is wrapped in God being a Father. Now, it's been said, many, uh, said that many of God's attributes can be hard for people to grasp. For instance, justice is a, a vast concept. But to say that God is a just Father helps clear it up for us. Or take the concepts of grace and truth, especially when grace and truth are placed side by side. How do you explain to someone grace and truth? But if you say that God is the Father of, of, uh, uh, that who is full of grace and truth, a Father who is full of grace and truth, oh, that starts to make sense to us. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching the disciples 
how to pray, which we just sang a song about how he taught them to pray this morning. How did he begin that prayer? And remember, the thing you got to remember before you answer that question uh, was their view of God had been based upon the Old Testament perspective of God. That's the context. We're reading it post-Calvary. We're reading those texts in our minds post you know, crucifixion and resurrection. But what you have to do is go back and think about what they were thinking about because they had an old concept, Old Testament concept and perspective of God. And a God back then was a God they viewed who could not be approached as Father. A God that was so holy that only a small number of people got to approach Him. You know, Moses and the prophets and, and the high priests. But in, his, in this instruction on how to pray, Jesus reframes everyone's image of God by saying in Matthew 6, 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then in the same passage, just a few verses later, after the Lord's Prayer, it says there, again, talking about the Father, he's just pounding this concept over and over in the New Testament and in the Sermon on the Mount. If you forgive other people there's who sin against you, who will forgive you? Your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive those who have sinned against you, what? Your Heavenly Father's not going to forgive your sins. says the same thing in chapter 6, a little earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, about giving, about giving to the poor and, and not letting your left hand know what your right hand's doing and, and doing it in secret. But it says in verse 4 there, so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees that what is done in secret will reward you. Your Father, God. Verses 5 through 8 there, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is, what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The chapter before here, chapter 5, verse 16, a verse that we're very familiar with in the early section on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your light shine before people, what? In such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, Jesus invites people to live in such a way that the world doesn't merely see what good things we do, but we, that they see that we do them because we are in a relationship with our heavenly Father. And you know, even salvation, the plan of salvation uh, is tied to the heavenly Father. John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to who? No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Time and time again, we see Jesus clarifying the image of God as Father. And even as He hung on the cross, He was still sending this message. In Luke 23, verse 34, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And when, right at the very end, when we come to the end of the crucifixion, verse 46, what does Jesus say there? Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. You know, I think that when Jesus would refer to God, 
He would want us to think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when I say God to you right now, do you think along those lines? Especially, do you think of Father? We get Jesus and we get the Holy Spirit, but do we, get, do we think of the Father? You know, years ago when Pastor Kerry was uh, first here as a pastor, he was a youth pastor. And some of you don't know Pastor Kerry in that role. You've never known him to be in that capacity as a youth pastor. But that is how he was called to serve at this particular church 29 years ago, long before he ever transitioned to be an associate pastor of worship, uh, you know, uh, missions, and being a facility manager. He was an excellent youth pastor who at the time we thought when he uh, wanted to transition to other areas of ministry, we thought, oh, we're never we're never going to be able to find somebody like him. Then God brought a good youth pastor along named Steve Cornelius. And then now he's brought Pastor Nathan to be with us. But in Pastor Kerry's early years here, he had a volunteer that helped him out with the junior high youth group uh, who was a big barrel-chested man who long before the Duck Dynasty beards were in vogue had a big beard as well. And uh, the youth group affectionately nicknamed this guy Caveman. And he loved kids, and he was so good with them. And the point I want to make here, however, is that it took this man a number of years into his Christian life to begin seeing God as a heavenly father, uh, as his perfect heavenly father. You see, this man had grown up in a home where he had been physically abused by his father. And anytime you were ever together with him, and if something fell and there was a loud noise or a crash, he would tuck in just instantly like he was going to get hit by something. Uh, and it was sort of a PTSD type of reaction. And Caveman said it took him years into his Christian faith to realize that God the Father wasn't just going to smack him. For this man, in the early years of his faith, he, he said saying God was our Father or is my Father was hard to accept. What helped him were texts in the Bible, like Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, which described Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And remember, uh, this helped caveman, and I've, I've seen it help other people that have grown up just like caveman did, that God is a loving Father. This is my Son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Aren't these words something? God is saying, that's my Son. That's my boy. I love him. And with him, I am well pleased. Talk about fatherly delight. You know, one of the greatest joys that's been in my life as a father has been to officiate at the weddings of three of my children. And when our son, Nathan, who's our youngest, uh, was married to his precious wife, uh, a bride, Nicole, up in International Falls, Minnesota, at the International Falls Covenant Church, uh, I had the opportunity to officiate that wedding. And I shared with them and with everyone in attendance how proud I was and his mother Cindy were of this young man. His entire life he had honored the Lord and how he had brought up, uh, you know, he had brought tremendous honor to our family. How he had been such a good leader and an example in everything that he did. How he'd always been so responsible and hardworking and a, a good student and a good athlete. How he was a great role model for others coming up behind him. And how delighted we were with, in, with him that he was using his gifts to serve the Lord in ministry 
And coming from my dysfunctional family background, now he was going to be the second generation covenant pastor. And now he was marrying Nicole. And we were prouder of him than ever. And I'm sharing this, of course, and I'm blubbering. I look down in the front row and Cindy's blubbering. I look over and his sisters who are standing up for him in the wedding are blubbering. Nathan, of course, is bawling his eyes out. Good thing he had Nicole there to hold him up. And, uh, and uh, Nathan's groomsmen uh, were also crying. And you've got to realize his groomsmen were three of his groom, a number of his groomsmen were all Division I college wrestlers. And two of them had been state champions in the state of rest, uh, California. There's 40 million people in California. Well, there used to be. I don't know how many there is now. But there were, you know, 40 million people in the state of California. And what's different about their wrestling is it's all one division. So you got to beat everybody in the state to be the state champion. And one of those guys was a two-time California state champion. They'd walked out on the mat and they had faced down some of the toughest people there are to face in the country and even sometimes in the world. And these guys are standing up there and they're losing it. They're just blubbering when they hear those words. That's how powerful words of blessing, words of affirmation, words of love are. So please understand this. When we are in Christ Jesus, who does God see? He sees Christ. He doesn't see us as these wretched, miserable sinners. He sees Jesus. He sees sons and daughters in Christ. And in Jesus, He's telling us. He's telling us that He loves us, that we're His sons and daughters, and that He is well pleased with us. We are His. Those folks are powerful words. Now, none of us have had perfect earthly parents, and that can have consequences to it for all of us. But our identity as sons and daughters of God can heal all of those wounds, and it can open new doors of opportunities for us and new doors that will propel us into a greater purpose for our lives. And isn't it something that the God who carved out the Grand Canyon, who spoke it into being, who put every single star in its place, who created the sun and the moon and every plant and every animal and who created night and day. Isn't it something that that God knows your name? That that God knows my name? See, when a person comes to Christ, their family of origin no longer has to or even gets to control what they think about when they think about God. Okay? They are born anew as a son or a daughter of a perfect heavenly father. This person now has a new family and a new father. You know, one of the spoken languages in Israel's day, uh, or in, 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 in Israel in Jesus' day, was the language Aramaic. And Aramaic came about because seven centuries before Jesus, the Assyrians came in, invaded the northern ten tribes, which was Israel, and they conquered Israel. Israel never existed again as a nation uh, at that point, uh, all the way through till 1948 when they got to go back to the promised land, never existed again as a nation uh, because of that Assyrian conflict. And they carried many away into exile. 
Then they brought in many Assyrians who lived in the land and spoke the language and intermarried with Jews. And that's where the Samaritans came from. And so this language was the language that many people knew, especially people that were lower class and poorer. Well, that language, in that language, when children were addressing their own earthly father, they would say Abba, Abba. It was a personal title. It wasn't a formal title. It was more of a familial, familiar kind of title. It was a family name. It was like we say Daddy or Papa in our language. Well, when Jesus hung on the cross and called out to the Father twice, some Bible scholars really believe that he would have said those words in Aramaic, Abba. And remember I shared with you, Abba, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. They say that he would have said that uh, because it would have been a language that the common people would have understood what he was saying. Frankly, I'm not sharp enough to know for sure if that's exactly what it was because it's recorded for us in the Gospels in Greek as patera. I'm not sharp enough to know that and it's really beyond my pay grade. But what I do know is that Romans 8.15 does teach that sort of thing. That the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We have a God to call Father. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this sermon series, the opportunity to explore that you are a perfect Father. And today, God, you have extended the invitation to us to call you Father. God, we readily acknowledge today that our image of, of, of the Godhead, especially God the Father, sometimes gets skewed and messed up because of this broken, fallen world we've lived in and, and the families, perhaps, we've even come from. But God, you have shown us in a fresh way that Jesus called you Father, that Jesus invited us to call you Father, that uh, Jesus demonstrated that, and he was the example of that over and over and over again in the Gospels. And that when we come to you in Christ Jesus, we are your sons and daughters. You love us, and you're well pleased with us. Oh God, I pray we embrace those images in our hearts and our minds uh, today and in the days to come. And may that just change, God, uh, how we live out our lives. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.